0: Welcome to Stars and Swords, I'm Alistair Stevens. In this episode, we are going to continue and possibly even conclude our journey through Narnia beginning with Chapter 11 of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We'll see how far we get. We have to begin, though, with a mistake that I made in last week's episode. While discussing Mr. Beaver's advice that the children be wary of things which look human but aren't, and discussing the idea of the uncanny valley being home to things untrustworthy and malevolent, I failed to anticipate and address a possible interpretation of the text. That interpretation is that C.S. Lewis was racist, and that the inhuman figures to whom he is alluding are non-white or non-English people. I heard from a couple of listeners that this was upsetting, because of course no one wants to suddenly believe that the book is advocating for a limited, tyrannical definition of humanity based on a particular racial or ethnic standard. I can't deny that it's a strong reading of that part of the text, but I'm glad to say I don't think that that's what Lewis is talking about. And I don't think that Lewis is any more racist than other writers of his time. In fact, I would say much less racist than other writers of his time. But there is certainly a discourse which delights in painting Lewis as racist and sexist both. In the years around the turn of the century, in particular, shortly after his 100th birthday, and in advance of the 2005 movie adaptation, of course, several people came forward to try and shift the public perception of Lewis. Most notably, given the time and the relevance to Lewis's work, J.K. Rowling and Philip Pullman, the author of the His Dark Materials trilogy, who describes Lewis's work as pro-Christian propaganda, as well as, quote, blatantly racist. And to that first charge, we can only respond... I mean, yes, it is a work in which the moral framework as presented is at least compatible with and evocative of Protestant Christianity, but Pullman clearly isn't arguing about the literary value of propaganda, or more generously of infusing your fiction with your own personal beliefs, a political agenda, because his work is positively dripping with his own evangelical atheism, which means that what he's really taking offense at is Lewis's Christianity, not his propaganda. Which, I guess, is fine. If someone criticizes The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe for being a fantasy novel for children, there isn't really a clever analytical maneuver which can deflect that accusation. Yes, it's a fantasy. Yes, it's for children. Yes, it's Christian. But when you're coming in having already decided that the book is bad, morally bad in this case, then you're much more likely to find objectionable content than if you engage in the sort of generous and careful reading that we are trying to do in this podcast. So let's do what we do best and read the book. Does the text of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe demonstrate racist beliefs? I don't think that it does. If we're looking at this text, we can point to the dramatized whiteness of the White Witch, which is, of course, particularly evocative of Nazi Arianism in the context of the post-war years. We can point to Edmund's deceit and betrayal, his badness that doesn't in any way shift our interpretation of his race. There's no Thor and Loki-style he's-adopted joke in this book. We can point to the inclusivity of the Pevensey children's friendships in Narnia with non-human creatures, and with, more generally, the specific and deliberate positioning of diversity as a positive social force. We can point to the numerous parts of the text which emphasize that we ought not to make blanket statements about the good or evil inclinations of any class or category of being, from trees to dwarfs. We can point to the celebration of the foreign and the exotic, although that is perhaps an appropriative sin of a slightly different sort and a much smaller stature there are other elements to other books in the series and i don't want to jump the timeline in order to cite examples to damn lewis likewise i don't want to jump the timeline to cite examples to exonerate him we're here to look at the text and i believe looking at the text that though we see the biases we might expect from a white christian academic in the middle years of the 20th century We ought to be more generous than that, and point out that in several ways, Lewis's thoughts on identity, in all the myriad ways identity has covered and expressed, are more progressive than we might expect for this time. Just as we've seen old-fashioned mid-century gender essentialism, given a measure more care and nuance than we might expect, so we get, I would argue, a similar treatment of race. So, if it's not racism, what is Mr. Beaver saying? I think the distinction being made by Mr. Beaver, and we don't even have time to get into the specific biases that Mr. Beaver, who speaks in the tone and the style of the English working classes rather than the more, you know, huge scare quotes, enlightened, educated middle class might exhibit. This is what it comes down to. And this is going to be particularly relevant when we look at the gifts that Father Christmas gives to the children, the roles they play in the last third of the story. It's essentialism. We talked about the ways in which the book demonstrates gender essentialism, which is In modern usage, used primarily to mean a belief that biological sex determines gender identity, but we're using it here in the broader, older sense, a reference to the philosophical view with its roots in the writings of Aristotle. Essentialism just tells us that there are fundamental aspects to things. In each thing, there is a quality of thingness which is definitive. That is to say, without that quality of thingness, the thing would be something else. The quality of thingness is essence. So, the essence of being a girl, for example, both defines what it is to be a girl, and moreover tells us how a girl ought to behave in order to be a good girl, in order to best demonstrate her essence, to achieve Aristotelian excellence, to be the thing that she is as fully and purely and powerfully as possible. And everyone, of course, everything, must demonstrate their essence in the pursuit of excellence. That is what goodness and and happiness are to the Aristotelian mind. So this idea is incredibly influential through the early development of the social sciences, of philosophy and of politics. It isn't until the 19th century, really, that we start to see some organized and thorough oppositions to essentialism as a basic idea. And one of the reasons that essentialism lasts so long is that it is uniquely portable. It can be turned to any purpose in any place because essentialism doesn't tell you anything about what the essence is. Two people might agree that a man ought to conduct himself in accord with his essence, even though they fundamentally disagree about what that essence is. Essentialism might be, can be, positive, respectful, noble, inclusive, It might believe the best of the essence. And I'm sure you're jumping ahead of me here. I'm sure you're anticipating my next maneuver. But this takes us to Lewis's sexism, because he clearly believes that being a woman, being a girl in this case, means certain things. It demands certain things, and it precludes other things. And maybe none of those things taken on their own are particularly objectionable. But here in the 21st century, we are skeptical of essentialism. We are rightly skeptical of essentialism. And we push back against the idea, particularly in modern American identity politics, that anything about a person is fixed. Be who you want. Do what you want. Find meaning and purpose wherever you can. You are more than the product of your essence. But obviously, that battle is still ongoing. And in conservative circles, essentialism still holds a lot of power. That would be true for Lewis's time too. So I would argue here that Observing essentialism in action, distilling it from the text, tells us something about the philosophical framework of the writer. It tells us, perhaps, that there is a fundamental conservatism involved, since essentialism always advocates for an adherence to the foundation. Essentialism is always skeptical of change, but it doesn't tell us in and of itself what the writer believes the essence of the depicted group to be. We might find essentialism distasteful and reductive, And it has certainly been used to justify all kinds of hate in the past, and sadly in the present too, but a belief in essentialism doesn't necessarily mean that a person is bad. We have to look at what the essence of the depicted group is. And so what we might take from Mr. Beaver, an imperfect vessel for the purpose of author function, perhaps, is that goodness and virtue come from people who understand their own essence and achieve Aristotelian excellence. They fulfill, they manifest that essence fully in the world. Badness and vice come from people who misunderstand their essence or fight against it. The White Witch is not a queen of Narnia and ought not to pretend to be. Edmund ought not to be envious and greedy and secretive, because those are not parts of the essence of the son of Adam. The citizens of Narnia who have taken the White Witch's side are compromised, are not themselves, are not excellent in the Aristotelian sense, and that is where badness comes from. A dwarf is a dwarf and ought to be a dwarf. A dwarf ought not to try to be a human. This takes us back to last week's discussion, of course, on the difference, the distinction between seeming and being. And we'll continue to study what this book takes to be the essences of our characters as depicted, and of the categories of being to which they belong. But for now... Enough philosophy, enough politics, let's get into the synopsis and move ahead with today's reading. So having met with Father Christmas and witnessed the return of spring to Narnia, Peter, Susan and Lucy now meet with Aslan himself. Aslan shows Peter the distant gleam of Cair while the girls are attacked by Mogrim. Peter slays the wolf and is knighted. Edmund, meanwhile, is prepared for sacrifice, only to be rescued. He talks with Aslan and is forgiven for what he has done. The witch confronts Aslan at the stone table and demands Edmund. Aslan instead offers up his own life, only to return. He takes the girls to the witch's home, breaks the enchantment of the stone statues, marshals the free creatures, including Tumnus, and returns to the battle where he kills the witch. Lucy heals the struck Edmund with her cordial, and the children are crowned at Care Paravel. Aslan departs from Narnia, and the children grow into adulthood, ruling wisely and well, until one day they happen upon the lamppost and return through the wardrobe, becoming children once again. And I know, I know, there's a real temptation to jump ahead to the end and talk about what is one of the most unusual parts of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but don't worry, we'll get there. Maybe not today, but we will get there. Instead, let's begin by going back just a little, which is perhaps the most me phrase that I've ever said. Let's begin by revisiting the gifts of Father Christmas at the end of chapter 10, because there is definitely some analysis to be done. Father Christmas gives Mrs. Beaver a new sewing machine, and completes and repairs the Beaver's dam as a gift to Mr. Beaver. Now, obviously, there's the traditional gender gap here. The fabric of the house is the man's domain, and sewing and crafts are the domain of the woman, but I think that there is something more subtle happening here. And this is in the category of things which I don't know are important, but are bothering me as I read the book, and are certainly, I think, pointing us toward a better understanding of the kind of essences that lewis believes are active in the world that that are virtues in the world according to his essentialist structure but big picture as i've hinted at in previous episodes i don't completely understand what this book is saying about gender i don't completely understand what it is saying about the essence of the feminine or of the masculine on the one hand the obvious read the traditional read the consensus is that the book promotes old-fashioned gender roles in which the men are strong leaders and the women are obedient followers that the men are courageous that the women are gentle. And let's be clear, I mean, there is some of that, some inherited from mid-century post-war English environments in which the book is written, some from Victorian and Georgian periods which inform so much of Lewis's old-fashioned approach to life even in the post-war period, some from fairy tale and fantasy medieval traditions, tales of Arthur and Guinevere and courtly chivalry, and some even from the older mythologies of Rome and Greece. But there are other influences, contrasting influences, positive pressures applied against that simple interpretation. We see that in the gifts from Father Christmas, including in the gifts to the beavers, because the sewing machine is a gift that will be put to use. It is a means itself of creation, of creativity. It will be used to maintain and restore as well as create. A sewing machine is the first thing we hear when we enter the beaver's home earlier in the book, of course, and it is a symbol of domesticity, of safety, of comfort. It is noted again when we leave the beaver's home because it is too heavy to bring. And even then, we must acknowledge that Father Christmas gives Mrs. Beaver a new and better version. And here's an important detail. Beavers don't wear clothes. Of this, we can be pretty sure because there is no mention of clothes in the text when we are introduced to Mr. Beaver, unlike when we are introduced to Tumnus, And furthermore, the illustrations, which we clearly have to take as some kind of paratext, albeit a a close paratext, the illustrations clearly show the beavers without clothing. And honestly, I can't believe we're so far into this series before I have cause to mention Pauline Baines. Pauline Baines is the illustrator of the original version of this book. Lewis is impressed with her because of the work that she had done for Professor Tolkien's Farmer Giles of Ham in 1948. Lewis and Baines meet twice before the publication of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He is effusive about her work and effusive about her in general, effusive enough that he would overlook her lack of skill at drawing animals, particularly lions. In any case, her drawings, particularly in the first volume, are hugely influential over the way that the novel exists in the popular imaginarium. And obviously her detail work has inspired many design elements of the uh, film and the TV adaptations. The lamppost in the 2005 adaptation is almost identical to the one from her original drawing. A drawing which would, by the way, make an excellent tattoo. The point is that we can be pretty sure that the beavers don't wear clothes, which means that the function of the sewing machine, the practical domestic function, isn't what we might expect. Rather, we might speculate that it is used to make tablecloths and curtains and napkins and the like. Certainly, we see those kinds of soft furnishings in the illustration of the beaver's home earlier in the book. So it is not about utility, not about simple utility, clothes, protection from the cold, but rather about comfort. So let's circle back to what we might have thought from a distance resembled a point. Father Christmas's gift to Mrs. Beaver relates to the provision of comfort and civility, but is also the gift of a tool that can be put to ongoing use. Father Christmas's gift to Mr. Beaver, by contrast, is to simply complete the tasks that were on his to-do list, completing and repairing the dam and adding a sluice gate to regulate the flow of water. There's an interesting detail there too. The beaver's home wouldn't have required a sluice gate until the spring came, because as the narrator tells us, the water above and below the dam is completely frozen. We should also note that the dam and the lodge are functionally distinct. The beaver's home is connected to the dam, but they aren't one and the same, just to separate the home and hearth versus workplace arguments that we might be making about Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. It is also true, to deviate even further, that the dam appears to have predated the freezing of the river and the advent of the White Witch's winter, which implies, superficially, that it hasn't been very long since the White Witch became queen, or named herself queen. We don't get a time frame in this novel. Later novels will claim that her reign lasted for 100 years, which means that either the beavers are old, that the dam itself is some kind of ancestral holding, or that something odd is happening to the passage of time in Narnia. More on that later. To sum up, then, Mr. Beaver's domain is work, and his task is finite and completed for him. Mrs. Beaver's domain is home. Her task is ongoing, and her gift is a tool to help. Men build and shape and define, and their work is oriented around accomplishment. Women nurture, craft, and civilize, and their work is ongoing. Is this a glimpse of the essentialist essence of gender as this book understands them? Perhaps. And this isn't, of course, a blanket statement, just a read of the specific dynamics between the beavers. Let's hold it as a possible means of understanding the gender dynamics as presented in Narnia and look at how it might be applied to the gifts given to the children. Peter's Mm -hmm. gift, of course, is the sword and the shield, and he feels their serious purpose. Again, we're opening these children up to the experience of solemnity through grandeur and immediacy. We're told here too that the sword and shield are just the right size and weight for Peter to use, which is an interesting detail to think about as we move into subsequent books in the series. Susan is given the bow and the quiver full of arrows, as well as the ivory horn. The use of the horn to summon help falls absolutely, I would argue, within the traditional feminine domain of cooperation. But the bow is more difficult to parse until we remember how deeply Narnia is influenced by Greco-Roman classicalism, which might suggest that the bow isn't intended as a weapon of war, though as Father Christmas notes it could be used as such, but rather as a tool of the hunt, connecting Susan with Artemis or with uh, Diana in the Roman tradition. This is not to suggest a simple one-to-one connection, which would reduce the complexity of our reading and certainly stand against the value the narrative places on civility and society, but I think that there are Resonant elements. Lucy's gifts, her dagger and the healing cordial, are similarly oriented around what we might understand to be the feminine domain, the feminine essence. This is particularly true because the nature of the healing cordial is magical and not scientific. We have, by 1950, already witnessed the masculinization of healing, the dominance of the quote male doctor over the female nurse, and the move from remedies and holistic healcraft to modern science, which predated that change. So it's healing, it's magical, it's feminine. But note how Father Christmas describes the cordial. Quote, A cordial made of the juice of one of the fire flowers that grow in the mountains of the sun. So it is magical in effect, but it is given a modern semi-scientific origin, and a masculine one at that, with the classical associations of fire and mountains and sun. This cordial is hot sauce. It's the most conventionally masculine of all condiments. And this is the point that I am clumsily striving to make about this book's gender essentialism. It is there, it is evident, it is in the text, and it is compelling, but you scratch the surface just a little, and there are sophisticated nuances which challenge your own presuppositions about what gender means, and certainly the use to which this essentialism is being put. Is it simplifying and reducing and distilling these characters, or is it allowing them to be more complex, to be larger and more subtle, more nuanced? Similarly, and we're running long already, so I won't spend too much time on this, but I would, of course, read Father Christmas's injunction against Susan and Lucy fighting in battle as another brick in that wall. Fighting is not a part of the feminine essence, which is presumably why, quote, battles are ugly when women fight. That is, bad things happen when we defy our essence again we might chafe at the restrictive definitions of what a woman should or must be even if the particular elements of the definition are not necessarily objectionable in and of themselves so with all that said let's get into this week's reading chapter 11 aslan is near the white witch her dwarf conciliary and edmund are traveling across narnia as the winter thaws into spring and come across something that resembles a christmas feast what's most interesting here apart from the rather charming depiction of the feast and the courage of the young squirrel who stands up to the queen, is what has happened to Edmund. And it's both easy to miss and vital to a comprehensive understanding of the book. Before coming upon the feast, Edmund is feeling very sorry for himself. Quote, This was a terrible journey for Edmund, who had no coat. Before they'd been going for a quarter of an hour, all the front of him was covered it with snow. He soon stopped trying to shake it off, because as quickly as he did that, a new lot gathered, and he was so tired. Soon he was wet to the skin, and oh, how miserable he was. It didn't look now as if the witch intended to make him a king. All of the things he had said to make himself believe that she was good and kind and that her side was really the right side sounded to him silly now. He would have given anything to meet the others at this moment, even Peter. And then, much later, as the white witch is turning the feasting creatures to stone, Edmund shouts, shouts, mind you, oh, don't, don't, please don't. We see here that the common interpretation of Edmund, he eats the Turkish delight and a spell is laid upon him, a kind of mind control that makes him believe the witch's words, isn't accurate. The truth is much worse. He knew almost from the beginning that he had made the wrong choice. He tried to hide it. He felt shame. He now acknowledges that he had tried to narrativize his experience in order to justify his choices. All the things he had said to make himself believe. This is An act of self deception at odds with the essentialist demand for self awareness. All these things that he has said to make himself believe have now lost their power. He is seeing her clearly. This is, in effect, the narrative function of the scene. She demonstrates her evil, her denial of the truth, and Edmund speaks in the defense of others and is punished. This is important because it situates Edmund's redemption spoilers, Edmund will be later redeemed in his own understanding and action. We'll continue to track that as we move forward. At the end of this chapter, we get the account of the Thaw. Quote, All around them, though out of sight, there were streams chattering, murmuring, bubbling, splashing, and even in the distance, roaring. And his heart gave a great leap, though he hardly knew why, when he realized that the frost was over. And much nearer, there was a drip, drip, drip from the branches of all the trees, and then As he looked at one tree, he saw a great load of snow slide off it, and for the first time since he had entered Narnia, he saw the dark green of a fir tree. I think this passage is technically excellent, and is, frankly, a powerful rejection of any criticism of Lewis's skill as an author. We get the sounds of running water, culminating, you'll note, in the Aslanic roaring in the distance. And of course, if we associate the roaring with Aslan, then Edmund's leaping heart, though he hardly knew why, is an echo of that moment of revelation he felt upon hearing Aslan's name for the first time. But now that he is no longer in denial about the White Witch, he feels hope rather than horror. And then, as he realizes the frost is over, the snow falls from the tree and the greatest symbol of secular Christmas is revealed, the fir tree. It is an absolutely masterful passage. Nothing is overstated or overplayed, but everything is loaded with significance. And now, since Edmund is already feeling the hope brought by Aslan's presence in Narnia, let's go meet the guy himself. In chapter 12, Peter's first battle, we begin with the return of spring, the tiredness of the children, and the climbing to the great stone table. Quote, It was a great, grim slab of grey stone supported on four upright stones. It looked very old. It was cut all over with strange lines and figures that might be the letters of an unknown language. They gave you a curious feeling when you looked at them. This is the first real introduction of the notion of ancientry into the very anachronistic realm of Narnia, which will be relevant in the near future. We are going to see this expanded into a conflict between Christian modernity and pagan ancientry, which hasn't up until this point really been a part of the landscape of Narnia, except to the degree that the witch is representative right witches in general are representative of pagan influence before we get to that though i must confess i don't know how many times i have read this book but my brain has completely failed to process the weirdest creature in aslan's audience we have dryads we have naiads, check check we've got centaurs we've got it we've got a pelican which is odd but okay we have a bull with a man's head which always until this reading transposed itself in my brain to mean a minotaur, which makes sense because A, minotaurs show up later in the story, and B, minotaurs are a thing, whereas a bull with a man's head is weird. I am at a loss. My, my research tells me that a human-headed bull is a mythic figure in some Mesopotamian mythologies and in the mythologies of Japan, but I don't see any applicability. Is he just supposed to be the reverse of the minotaurs who serve the White Witch? If so, I mean, that is, that is awful, and stands against the idea that creatures are not good or evil by virtue of their essential being. It may just be that this is a weird image that has been dredged from the depths of C.S. Lewis's mind. More importantly, though, more importantly than the bull with the man's head, we get a glimpse of Aslan himself. Quote, People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time if the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great royal solemn overwhelming eyes, and then they found they couldn't look at him, and went all trembly. Again, we get this connection between the adult world and the full complex range of human experience here in Narnia, which, As we've discussed, we might read either as a transit into the adult world or transit into a fantasy realm in which the fantasy realm is in some ways coterminous with adult experience. We see that powerful emotions are combined into contradictory sets. And I'll be honest, I don't really know what to make of that past the superficial read. I mentioned in the last episode that the book seems to be asserting that temporality, that the knowledge that this moment too will pass never to return, gives us a bittersweet romanticism to joy and i think that that is both true to the text and to some degree certainly true in real life but it also seems incomplete i can only assume that the book is seeking to evoke an experience of awe and solemnity that i myself as a as a reader of this book don't find completely familiar and honestly that's okay because that is part of the magic of books we encode an emotional state into marks on a page and then hand that page to another person at a different time and a different place, they decode that same emotional state from those marks and then they really feel it? I mean, that's wild. That shouldn't work. That shouldn't be possible at all. The fact that it is feels like some kind of magic. We get this moment of hesitation as no one, humans or beavers, wants to be the first to approach Aslan in all of his terrible solemnity but Peter does what must be done and leads, quote, then at last Peter realized that it was up to him, end quote, because of course it's up to Peter. But then when they talk to Aslan, their hesitation and their nervousness is stilled. They are suddenly at peace. And we might see this as part of the counter-strategy of the narrative voice. Usually the narrative voice, the active narrator, takes control of the story to help the reader feel safe and to assert moral norms. Here though, interestingly, The narrative voice recedes, allowing the presence of Aslan to calm the children and the reader both. This is the first example, the first direct textual example, though we can certainly see hints earlier in the book, that Aslan somewhat exceeds the narrative frame. He doesn't behave like the other characters in the book. The other characters are subordinated by the narrative voice's service to the reader, We'll see that almost immediately in this chapter when we get that parenthetical aside. Terrible pause, thought Lucy, if he didn't know how to velvet them. In addition to once again emphasizing the coexistence of the wonderful and the terrible, this moment places Lucy in the position held thus far by the narrative voice, by the Lewis author function. This isn't the first time that we've had attributed dialogue in parentheses. Tumnus explains that he has two chairs, one for me and one for a friend, early in the book, and we get a moment of Edmund's internal monologue, and Mr. Beaver explains that locking the door will delay the White Witch for a bit as they are leaving the dam. But 95%, 98% of the parenthetical insertions that we have had in this text thus far have taken the form that we've described. The narrative voice intrudes to frame what is happening, to make the reader feel more secure and comfortable. And to moderate and mediate the tone of the book, and to maintain that children's literature spirit, this though is notably different because Lucy is speaking in the same manner and to the same purpose as the narrative voice. The narrative voice is not present in the sequence. I think that this is very important, and we will get to what it means in just a few pages. Aslan then takes Peter to the distant gleam of Caraparavel on the coast, but. Really, it is all part of Aslan's unfolding plan, or, we might argue, his knowledge of a plan that is already in motion. Quote, And once more Peter said nothing, for at that moment a strange noise woke the silence suddenly. It was like a bugle, but richer. It is your sister's horn, said Aslan to Peter in a low voice, so low as to be almost a purr, if it is not disrespectful to think of a lion purring. For a moment Peter did not understand. Then when he saw all the other creatures start forward and heard Aslan say with a wave of his paw, back, let the prince win his spurs, he did understand and set off running as hard as he could to the pavilion. So let's recognize the obvious here. Aslan knows what is going to happen. He knows Mulgrim is going to attack. He knows, by implication, that Peter is going to prove himself. And after the scene, he knows what will happen when he dispatches his forces to pursue the second wolf and ultimately rescue Edmund. This recontextualizes the sadness, the solemnity that we mentioned before. We'll be able to unpack that too a little more thoroughly when we get there. For now, let's talk about the theatrical element here. Aslan could, one assumes, dispatch Mulgrim without any trouble. If the wolf were really a threat, then at the very least allowing the other creatures present to aid Peter would be a good precaution. Instead, Aslan talks of winning spurs, and Peter is then knighted as a reward for vanquishing his enemy. Those aren't disconnected, as they might seem to modern eyes, with the winning of spurs being disconnected from its historical source. It might make us think of the Old West more than Arthur's Court, but one of the symbols of knighthood in the medieval period was the wearing of gilded spurs. So the function of this fight, within the diegesis, is to knight Peter. Aslan is allowing this to happen so that he can knight Peter. Peter conducts himself with courage. He defeats his enemy. He rescues the princess and saves the day, fulfilling the chivalric idea of the knight. By being knighted, he is enfolded in the aristocratic tradition. He becomes a vassal of Aslan. He is sworn to serve. We might speculate as to why this step is necessary, though there are, I think, a few trivial explanations, a few surface-level explanations. Peter's first fight is over, which means that the upcoming battle against the witch's forces en masse will be for him now less terrifying. Peter has also proved himself in the eyes of Aslan's companions who will be more willing to follow his orders come the battle. We might even want to make a medievalist argument about Peter achieving his excellence of realizing the possibility of his essential self. That knighthood, that chivalry, that nobility are a fundamental part of the masculine essence, the human essence. We can draw that line very carefully. The other side of this, of course, is that the battle isn't as effortless or as dramatic as we might expect. Quote, Peter did not feel very brave. Indeed, he felt he was going to be sick, but that made no difference to what he had to do. He rushed straight up to the monster and aimed a slash of his sword at its side. That stroke never reached the wolf. Quick as lightning, it turned around, its eyes flaming and its mouth wide open in a howl of anger. If it had not been so angry that it simply had to howl, it would have got him by the throat at once. As it was, though all this happened too quickly for Peter to think at all, he had just time to duck down and plunge his sword as hard as he could between the brute's forelegs into its heart. Then came a horrible, confused moment, like something in a nightmare. He was tugging and pulling, and the wolf seemed neither alive nor dead, and its bared teeth knocked against his forehead, and everything was blood and heat and hair. A moment later, he found that the monster lay dead, and he had drawn his sword out of it and was straightening his back and rubbing the sweat off his face and out of his eyes. He felt tired all over. Then, after a bit, Susan came down the tree. She and Peter felt pretty shaky when they met, and I won't say that there wasn't kissing and crying on both sides, but in Narnia, no one thinks any the worse of you for that. The kissing here, of course, not romantic, but familial and... I would argue, chivalric. These are the kisses of the knight and his queen. And we should note, too, the fluidity in that aspect of Peter's characterization, right? He will, spoilers, become a king of Narnia at the end of the book, but his knighthood is also a fundamental part of who he is. He occupies both roles that are only really conflated in our post-medieval sense of medieval chivalry. We should note, too, that, in a sense, Mogram is defeated not by Peter, but by his own evilness, If he had not been so angry, we learn, things would have gone differently. And this is such a constant element of stories for children that it passes by almost unnoticed. Think of all the Disney villains who fall from high places or are consumed by their own magic or whatever. In this instance, though, Mogram overextends himself through his fury, but Peter still acts with courage and claims the kill. We are not exonerating Peter of this bloodshed. His knighthood isn't honorary or even a product of simple consequence. Rather, he really does demonstrate his character. He really does earn those spurs. A quick note as we conclude this chapter with the cleaning of Peter's sword. The emphasis Aslan puts on it is a particularly specific take, I think, on the restoration of civility after something uncivil has taken place. The sword as a tool for bloodshed is cleansed and restored to the sword as a symbol of authority. We don't delight in the battle but we also don't shy away from it. The line that Aslan is drawing, which we might see as being somehow the same as the importance he puts on Peter's knighthood, is that the two states ought not to be confused for one another. This is, again, at its heart, an essentialist argument. The war is the war, and the peace is the peace, and behaving as though one of these things is the other, behaving as though a thing is not the thing that it is, is simply not done. In the next chapter, the witch decides that Edmund must be sacrificed but he is rescued by the special forces that Aslan dispatched in the previous chapter. The narrator even notes that it was in the previous chapter, which is a little cute. And we'll see here an inversion of the kind of essentialist approach that we've been talking about this whole time, when the witch and the dwarf escape the notice of Aslan's followers. Quote, It was perfectly still, and presently the moon grew bright. If you had been there, you would have seen the moonlight shining on an old tree stump and on a fair-sized boulder. But if you had gone on looking you would gradually have begun to think there was something odd about both the stump and the boulder. And next, you would have thought that the stump did look really remarkably like a little fat man crouching on the ground. And if you had watched long enough, you would have seen the stump walk across to the boulder and the boulder sit up and begin talking to the stump. For in reality, the stump and the boulder were simply the witch and the dwarf. For it was part of her magic that she could make things look like what they weren't. And she had the presence of mind to do so at the very moment when the knife was knocked out of her hand. She had kept hold of her wand also, so it had been kept safe too. This seeming like things that we are not, very anti-essentialist, and you'll note how we encapsulate that idea of illusion, of seeming rather than being, within the wickedness of the witch and the dwarf. From there, we will skip ahead, and I don't really mean as readers we will skip ahead, but the text itself just paragraph breaks into the next morning, and the return of Edmund to the camp. Here we get the scene of Aslan talking with Edmund, and the narrator tells us, quote, there is no need to tell you and no one ever heard what Aslan was saying, but it was a conversation that Edmund never forgot. And thus, Edmund is reintegrated into our society. The modern impulse in YA fiction, and I do think that it is fair to argue that The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe exists somewhere between traditional children's fiction and what we now think of as the YA market, that it almost anticipates elements of that YA market, or Perhaps I suppose it would be more accurate to say that the YA market reflects certain elements of the Chronicles of Narnia. The modern impulse in YA fiction, however we get there, is toward melodrama. Every emotion is larger than life. Every emotion is expressed. That elevated emotional state, coupled with the desire to constantly reconfigure and reformat the relationships in the story in order to generate more friction, more conflict, more drama, these desires mean that every point of contact between two characters' emotionality is explored, is exploited. Think of how romantic and adversarial relationships are handled in something like Twilight, for example. Every dial turned to 11. Nothing ever really truly left in the past. Aslan's implicit forgiveness of Edmund, by contrast, is a really impressive moment of restraint and of authorial integrity. If you believe in the value, in the virtue of forgiveness, then this is how it ought to play out, not dramatically but simply. We should note, too, that though Aslan seems to have extended some kind of forgiveness by fiat, Edmund does actually apologize to and is forgiven by each of his siblings. We don't need to enumerate his vices. We don't need to make a speech. We don't need to make this conditional. We just do the hard thing. And we offer forgiveness. It's An old-fashioned virtue in an old-fashioned book, and while it might feel out of step with modern storytelling, I really do want to emphasize the consistency and the integrity with which the book approaches this theme of forgiveness, and not just with Edmund, of course, but also with Lucy's forgiving of Tumnus, as we discussed back in the first episode. We move back to our other great theme of essentialism, of course, when the witch's dwarf approaches Aslan with the message that the witch wants to meet. Quote, The Queen of Narnia and Empress of the Lone Islands desire safe conduct to come and speak with you, said the dwarf, on a matter which is as much to your advantage as to hers. Queen of Narnia, indeed, said Mr. Beaver, of all the cheek. Peace, Beaver, said Aslan. All names will soon be restored to their proper owners. In the meantime, we will not dispute about noises. Tell your mistress, son of earth, that I grant her safe conduct on condition that she leaves her wand behind her at that great oak. All names will soon be restored to their proper owners until then they are noises. The meaning of the thing is not portable. It cannot be transferred to something else and maintain its meaning. You'll note too that this suggests a semantic component to names in Narnia which goes beyond what we might expect in the real world, which should remind us in turn of the revelations associated with hearing Aslan's name as discussed last week. The name, when applied properly, has a greater meaning. When applied improperly, it has no meaning at all. It is a noise. We get a lot of technical world-building language in this section, and I'm loath to quote every line and sift it for meaning, because ultimately, as we've noted before, the world-building in Narnia is pretty thin stuff. An example of that, I suppose, can be found in Aslan's title for this dwarven emissary, Son of Earth. A confusing title, at least in part, because the capitalization suggests the planet Earth rather than the soil and the stone. In what sense, we might ask, we ought to ask, is the dwarf a son of the earth? Is it similar to the ways in which the Pevensey boys are sons of Adam? Are we simply borrowing from the fairy tale tradition of dwarves as a subterranean people connected with the stone? If so, is there something to be made of the dwarf, which in many traditions turns to stone in sunlight in much the same way as trolls do in Tolkien? Is there something there between the dwarf and the petrification power of the White Witch? Probably not. Probably there is nothing there. And certainly the text doesn't give us enough to forge those connections on our own. Instead, we're simply left with the power of the title, the power of the name itself. We also get the deep magic as inscribed on the world ash tree and on the stone table itself, the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea. There's a lot happening. And it all gestures to a wider and a more ancient world. And as a gesture, it works pretty well. The specifics, though, are, again a little harder to reconcile. The deep magic is put into Narnia by the emperor at the very beginning. Though it's described as deep magic, the witch also refers to this aspect of the magic as her rights and also as the law, and furthermore that, quote, all Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water if Aslan doesn't surrender Edmund to her. So there is something about the nature of this deep magic that is woven into immutable law, into legalistic structures and given structural consequence. If the White Witch isn't given Edmund the Betrayer, then the world will end. And let's be careful. We are not saying that she will destroy the world, but rather the old magic itself, that the the function of this law will destroy the world. And this gets us close to what I think is the most interesting and complex interpretation of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I'm honestly a little unsure how to approach it, because it is a big idea that draws on elements from all over the book. Let's begin by establishing that the old magic woven into the world at the beginning, part of the fabric of Narnia, it is inextricable from Narnia. It is not a power to wield or a spell to cast. It is part of the natural order of the things. It is conceivably the natural order of things. That at least seems clear from what the witch says and from what Aslan does not say. So this is a world of deep structure, of profound structure, of a kind of order which is described as both magic and rules. This order, this structure, is conceived by the emperor beyond the sea and crafted into Narnia in its beginning. Aslan is the emperor's son, as was previously established by Mr. Beaver, and when Susan suggests that we might work against the magic, Aslan frowns and silences that discussion, which tells us either that he is capable of standing against it but is choosing not to, or that he isn't capable of standing against it except of course that ultimately he does subvert this old magic because he knows older more powerful more fundamental magical rules thus the rules that create narnia don't exist in a vacuum but within a framework which already existed a framework which judging by aslan's words later about stillness and darkness predate even the emperor across the sea so let's consider first what Aslan might say to the White Witch when they hold their secret council. A mirror, of course, to Aslan's earlier conversation with Edmund. What do they talk about for so long, long enough that Aslan's entire company falls still and silent, long enough that this deflationary maneuver takes some of the sense of trepidation and conflict out of the immediacy of the story? He can't be persuading the witch to accept the trade, because the witch already wants to accept the trade, and the witch already knows what she wants, and she believes that she will be ultimately victorious. He can't be explaining the magic, neither the superficial magic, which the witch already knows, or the deeper magic, which will be ultimately turned to his advantage later. So we're left with what more theatricality. Aslan already knows what is going to happen. But he needs to bring the being and the seeming into alignment with one another. He needs to take the necessary steps to make the essence of the thing match its name. He is playing the part of negotiation because the story needs this to appear to be a negotiation, or the reversal in the next chapter and the greater reversal in the chapter after won't have their power. They won't have their intended narrative effect. This is a part of the frame, this is a part of the book. So when we talk about that theatricality, that choice to dramatize and perform and play the part for the benefit of an audience, and when we think about Aslan's ability to claim the space of the Lewis Avatar narrative voice that we discussed earlier, we have to wonder, or (laughs) I suppose to make this less general and presumptive, I have to wonder, to what degree Aslan is an author of this text? The old magic, the underlying rules, we see them realized in the world of Narnia as the tightening of conflict and the release of catharsis. We see them as storycraft. We see the symbols become the meaning, as with Peter and his knighthood. We see the names and their power, as with Aslan. We see a story. And I am on the record, you guys, as being someone who is somewhat exhausted by this particular narrative device. I'm writing a story about stories, and the story about stories is that stories are magical. That kind of flourish gets us to you know the most controversial parts of the ending of the TV adaptation of Game of Thrones, which I shall not spoil here. That kind of narrative flourish gets us to the entire career of Neil Gaiman. It gets us to self-reflexive and self-aware novels and TV shows and movies in which the significance of the narrative itself is held up as an axiomatic good. And I mean, to be clear, I believe that storytelling is an axiomatic good. I just don't need every story to self-reflexively become about how good and important stories are. And to be fair, that isn't what The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is doing. It doesn't get self-congratulatory. But through the elements I've discussed, and also through the ideas of play and imagination, particularly the ways in which play and imagination are coexistent with the fantasy realm, I'm compelled by the idea that Aslan's nature, his magic, his essence, is that of a sub-creator, a crafter of a story that is unfolding in front of him. He exerts a positive pressure on the shape of the narrative and on the narrative voice itself. He creates space for the story to be what it must be. All of the actions that we have seen him take thus far have been in the pursuit of that story. Giving Peter his moment of heroism, giving Edmund his moment of redemption, turning to older narrative structures and rules in order to ultimately take Edmund's place and defeat the witch in a way that is emotionally fulfilling and morally correct... And this is not unimportant. If you assume God's role as creator, then the author's subcreative role, per Tolkien, is a sacred one. It is not unlike being the son of the emperor across the sea. And it's tempting to expand this interpretation, right? It's tempting to talk about Aslan as an imaginary version of Christ, to talk about the allegory, to talk about how that functions within Lewis's created world, and the ways in which Lewis, the author, the real Lewis, might... Opt to subordinate himself creatively to the fictional reconstruction of the symbol of his faith, which is a really interesting and, and rich area which I'm under-equipped to explore, and which I'll say is itself pretty underexplored in general. One of the challenges about Lewis is that the Christian allegory, quote unquote, has kind of colonized the discursive space around the novel, and there just isn't enough academic work being done on this book, on this series outside of that interpretation, either pro or con. I believe that the ways in which Narnia exists as a fictional place rather than as a fantasy place is ripe for analysis. That is, the ways in which Narnia exists within the book, that the book is itself an artifact of the story. And I will say this too. I have pushed back against the idea that The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is a strict allegory, and having moved through the book with much more care and thought than I have previously... I now absolutely reject a flat allegorical interpretation. Aslan is Jesus, the stone table is the cross, death, and return. The problem is that you have to zoom out so far in order for those symbols to line up that you aren't even really looking at the text anymore. You know what, more on that next week when we can talk about what happens after Aslan trades himself for Edmund. One last thing about chapter 13. We are, all of us, cultural sponges. We absorb indiscriminately no matter how careful we try to be the The pop music playing in a grocery store finds a place in our head and loops there unimpeded. We absorb fragments of the cartoons we might see our kids watching. I myself am particularly bad at absorbing the lore of really dumb cartoons that happen to be playing in the room. I know about PJ Masks, you guys. But all of this is to say that A, Aslan saying wow at the end of the chapter strikes me as particularly silly, and B, I just hear it in Owen Wilson's voice. I mean, Liam Neeson does a great job in the 2005 adaptation, but what if Aslan sounded like Lightning McQueen. The word wow, by the way, is originally Scottish. It's attested from the 16th century, and there's no real consensus on where it comes from. But some etymologists, and I would guess that Lewis would be among their number, given how he uses the word in the book, some etymologists take it to be a phonological shift from I vow, meaning, of course, I swear, we go from I vow to I wow to wow, perhaps. So while the modern reader, though, might take Aslan's roar at the end of the chapter to be a noise intended to intimidate, or the very modern reader might even take it to be, you know, the millennial sarcastic wow, wow period from Aslan there, it is likely that in response to the witch's question, but how do I know this promise will be kept, Aslan is actually replying, I vow. Onward then, to chapter 14, and the triumph of the witch. Knowing what will happen at the stone table, Aslan leads his armies to the nearby ford to encamp. Aslan schools Peter on what must be done, and there's an interesting thread here that we might pull. Quote, As soon as she has finished her business in these parts, he said, the witch and her crew will almost certainly fall back to her house and prepare for a siege. You may or may not be able to cut her off and prevent her from reaching it. He then went on to outline two plans of battle, one for fighting the witch and her people in the wood, and another for assaulting her castle. So we've already discussed how Aslan knows what will happen, that he can in some sense at least see the future. He senses the shape of the story at the very least. Here, though, we see that he does not know what is going to happen after the events at the stone table that night. He can't see past the moment of his own death. In this way, we actually get a pretty sophisticated bit of allegory because Aslan is not above the world, but is a part of it. He can guide the story, he can to some extent create the story, but he is still of the story. This also means that his sadness and melancholy through the chapter isn't the same kind of theatricality that we have seen from him previously, but may well be real, which I'll tell you is an interpretation that I radically prefer. We might also sense here a distinction between the old magic and the older magic the old magic is the story but the older magic is what underpins it he knows what the story will be until the story demands his sacrifice the story demands his death when the older magic takes over he can no longer see the path of the future we might be tempted to draw a connection between that and the role of the author the author sets out the fictional world but underpinning that is the author's theology, the author's sense of metaphysics, the author's belief in how the world fundamentally works. When we remove the author from the creation, the real rules of reality, whatever that may mean in this context, take over. And we'll see that again as Lucy and Susan sneak out of the pavilion where they are sleeping, the whole camp beset with the sense of impending doom to find and follow Aslan into the forest. Note here too that he doesn't seem to know that they are following him, which might lead us to think about two things. The possibility that his knowledge of the future has come to an end, or the possibility that Susan and Lucy are acting somehow as agents of this deeper magic. It is not a part of the plan as Aslan understood it, because he can see the deep, but not the deeper. And maybe there's another force active in the story, and maybe I'm being unfair to Susan and Lucy. Maybe it's a better, stronger read. If we don't attribute their kindness and goodness to the presence of a benevolent, you catastrophically inclined god figure, but to their own human virtue. Isn't that, in a sense, the ultimate essentialist argument? When the rules break, we are no more and no less than what we are. From there, with the sense of doom increasing with every paragraph, we get to the stone table. Aslan bids the girls to wait, and here we see the evocation of this conflict between the oldest kind of pagan tradition clashing against the impassive Christian dignity, right? Smoke and flames and evil spirits, and as the narrator says with a flourish that I find absolutely charming, quote, and other creatures whom I won't describe because if I did, the grown-ups would probably not let you read this book. Cruels and hags and incubuses, wraiths, horrors, ifrits, sprites, orkneys, wusses, and ettins. Again, we see Lewis's indiscriminate approach to mythology here, right? The Incubus comes first from Mesopotamia, though of course its name is Latin. Wraiths, another 16th century Scots word, though we don't know where the word wraith comes from. Some say it is, again, phonetically derived from wrath, and some, including Professor Tolkien in his role as linguist rather than as author, think that the word writhe is actually the source of the word wraith. Ifrits are demons from pre-Islamic Arabic poetry. Sprites come from the Latin and the French word for spirit and are generally taken to be, you know, traditional European fairy folk. Orkneys, obviously, again, sounds like a Scots word, possibly describing men with pig-like qualities. The Pictish word orc means pig. Wusses seem to be connected to, or woses, I suppose it would be, seem to be connected to the old English pagan myths of bestial woodland men. And the Etin, of course, is the anglicization of the Jotun, the giant of Norse myth. It is a real grab bag. It is a real Dungeons and Dragons monster manual. Crucially here, we note that the witch is frightened when Aslan approaches. We're going to repeat this beat three or four times in the course of the chapter, because it is so important. And each time it is emphasized that Aslan is not being defeated, but is voluntarily submitting to the sacrifice. He is sad. He is impassive. He is dignified even as the witch and her followers seek to humiliate him, binding him, shaving him, muzzling him, spitting on him. Though, we'll note that in Lucy's eyes, these steps only make him, quote, braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. There's a reason, I think, that this scene is so memorable, so effective. It is just beautifully written. It is remarkably restrained. And if we're... Skipping over it fairly quickly here in the course of this podcast, it's only because we will be able to better understand what it means in the aftermath. Finally, the witch taunts Aslan. Quote, And now who has won? Fool, did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever, that you have lost your own life and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. So, obviously, this is posturing, and we know that Aslan doesn't believe that this is necessarily the case, as we saw in his instruction to Peter, but we do understand something crucial here about the witch. It is not just that she doesn't know the deeper magic, it's that she has no sense beyond the bounds of the magic that is presented to her. Deep, yes, but not deeper she is crucially of the story she is of the fictional frame of narnia in a way that aslan is not she believes that the seeming and the being here are one and the same unfortunately we are now hard running out of time next week will be the final installment of our discussion of the lion the witch and the wardrobe as well as the end of 2023 And that means that it is time to vote for the next book we will cover in this series. As I mentioned back in the introductory episode of this podcast, I want to mix longer and shorter works, and I certainly want to include stories in all kinds of genres, from all kinds of perspectives by all kinds of authors. So every season, every series, every time we gather together to discuss a new book, every time we're done, I will put together a shortlist for the Patreon patrons to vote on. Feel free to advocate for your choice over on the Discord, and I'm sure that I don't have to urge you all to keep the conversation positive and civil. Let's focus on what we love in the good rather than what we hate in the bad. To be a part of that conversation, to cast your vote, to decide the very course of this podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash next word and pledge your support. With that out of the way, let me do a little bit of advocacy on my own. Let's talk books. For the first season of 2024, I've chosen four works which are in some ways connected to The Chronicles of Narnia. I like the idea of building a chain of connections, associations, reflexes as we move forward. So for the first book of 2024, I have shortlisted Rabbits by Terry Miles, a 2021 mystery about an otherworldly game which is running behind the scenes of the real world, which is straining the seams of the text with strong characterization and a really fantastic exploration of What it is to be a person in the postmodern world. The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin is my second choice, which is a seminal science fiction deconstruction of what we mean and think we mean about sex and gender with all of Le Guin's grace and razor sharp precision in the prose. It is a fantastic book, a very important sci fi novel. The third book is The Neverending Story by Michael Enda, a take on a kind of adolescent portal fantasy that rejects the cozy conservatism of lewis and embraces new age 1970s expansion of the consciousness and if you only know the never-ending story from the movie which is excellent then you only know half the story because the back half of the novel of the never-ending story is where things get really wild. If you're interested in how Narnia functions as a fictional place and how the reader interacts the reader figure, in the case of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, interacts with that fictional place, then the never-ending story is for you. Lastly, Lev Grossman's 2009 novel, The Magicians, in which we learn what happens if we smash together Hogwarts and Narnia and new adult drama and treacherous metaphysics and, you know, depression. It's an imperfectly great book which takes all of the tropes of modern YA fantasy fiction from Narnia to Harry Potter and beyond and filters them through the experience of complex and modern characters. It is, as I say, imperfectly great, but fascinating to discuss. So that's Rabbits for a modern mystery about the world behind the world and how we make it, The Left Hand of Darkness for an absolute classic about gender identity and the worlds we can build the never-ending story for a mind-expanding exploration of what fiction is, what it does to us, what we do to it, and the magicians for a snapshot of where fantasy went after Lewis closed the wardrobe door. And for those of you who are curious, I'm absolutely planning on talking about the next Narnia book, probably next Christmas. It seems appropriate, but that, my friends, is a long way in the future. So next week, we will conclude with the final chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We'll conclude with some thoughts on the novel as Allegory. We'll try and bring together these threads of theme into some kind of cohesive whole. And I will reveal the results of the vote and lay out the plan for the next book in the Stars and Swords series. Everything that I do here is only possible thanks to you for listening, for communicating, for getting in touch, and of course for pledging your support at patreon.com slash next word. It has been a wild ride beginning this new podcast right here at the end of the year. I'm sure you can hear in my voice that perhaps I've been recording too many podcasts this week, but I cannot wait to finish up The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to bravely enter 2024. Oh my goodness, and I haven't even mentioned the bonus episode, which will also be coming out in the next week over on the Patreon page as I discuss the 2005 adaptation of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is, let me say, a movie that I really, really like. So if you're interested in that, patreon.com slash next word thank you so much for listening. That is going to finally do it for this week. I will talk to you again on Hogmanay. I will talk to you again on New Year's Eve. Until then, and so for a time, it looked as if all the adventures were coming to an end, but that was not to be. Thanks for listening.